0: We have to be intentional about that recovery and reboot. And I think the way to do that is, particularly for business people, is to go to your why. You know, go to why you do what you do. When we know why we do what we do, it helps us navigate all the speed bumps, all the challenges, all the no's.
1: If you're a person who's heard the word no from a boss, an ex, a team that cut you, a job market that didn't want you, an accident or diagnosis that left you debilitated and depressed or felt paralyzed by any setback that you just weren't willing to accept, this is the show for you because it'll teach you what my dad always taught me, that failure is just opportunity in disguise. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. Welcome back to 10,000 No's. I've got a great one for you today. I am bringing you Molly Fletcher. Now, I know most of you are familiar with lines like, show me the money, and you had me at hello from the great Cameron Crowe movie with Renee Zellweger and Tom Cruise as Jerry Maguire. Well, Molly Fletcher spent two decades as one of the world's only female sports agents, and she was hailed as the female Jerry Maguire by CNN as she recruited and represented hundreds of sports' biggest names, including Hall of Fame pitcher John Smoltz, PGA Tour golfer Matt Kuchar, broadcaster Aaron Andrews, and basketball championship coaches Tom Izzo and Doc Rivers. She has successfully negotiated over $500 million in contracts. And more importantly, and what she gets into a lot today, is she has built lasting relationships. Molly is a sought-after motivational speaker. She is the author of four books, Fearless at Work, A Winner's Guide to Negotiating, The Business of Being the Best, and The Five Best Tools to Find Your Dream Career. She has her own podcast called Game Changers with Molly Fletcher, and she currently serves on the board of directors for the Intercollegiate Tennis Association and the National Advisory Board for the Positive Coaching Alliance. There are a few reasons I wanted to bring Molly to 10,000 knows. One, her optimism. Two, she came to me through John Gordon, who introduced me to Wiley Publishers. As you know, I've been talking a lot lately about my book, which is coming out October 27th. John is a best selling author, and anybody that he knows is just has the seal of approval in my book. Uh, And Molly proved to be no different. Really incredible energy. So positive. You're going to hear the life force just in the way she speaks. She's got a warmth, but she's also got a focus to the way she speaks. And honestly, I kind of wanted to steal some of the Tactics and philosophies that she had in negotiating these huge deals, because I think each and every one of us is negotiating every day, all the time. It may not be for contracts of tens and hundreds of millions of dollars the way she's done it, but we're negotiating nonetheless. And I think there are so many lessons. And what I love about the way Molly speaks about what she has done professionally is that she breaks it down in a way that applies it to everyday life, the more human side, the relationship side of negotiating. Little situations that you may get into in seemingly mundane uh, environments, you can take them and use them for your life. So not only is it entertaining, but you're also gonna walk away with some new tools in your tool belt. Here she is, Molly Fletcher. I know that you are a huge keynote speaker and everybody that I've spoken to um like friends of mine that are that make their living doing that yeah. they're like yeah it's canceled basically for you know months and months how are you I guess, I guess it's a great place to start because you are so positive and you're all about you know the optimism and pivoting and everything. So like, how have you been dealing with it and how, what have you leaned into as a result of not being able to do one of the main things? I don't know if, you know, I don't know your setup, if that's like the main bread, you you know, the, the, the bread and butter of your business, or you also have this entrepreneurial business. So I imagine you're able to, to pivot easier than some, but how has this been for you?
0: Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's, it's been interesting. I mean, I think in all of these kinds of things, there's so many gifts, right? And so it's kind of amazing. And I, I haven't talked about this publicly yet at all, but my, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer uh, in late February. And so all of a sudden I was like, wow. And I had all these keynotes coming up in March and April and she wanted to do the surgery in Atlanta. My parents live in Michigan. Which was great because I could really help quarterback it. But I thought, man, how am I going to do this? Because I had like I don't know, fifteen plus keynotes over the next you know couple of weeks for for March and, and April, and and then like early March, you know, my office starts calling, going, "Hey Molly, this one got postponed. This one got postponed. This other one got postponed. Everything, you know." And I'm like, "Oh my god!" So it's actually been an incredible gift. I mean, I've been able to be right beside my mom and support her. You know, we have three teenage daughters who are 16, 16, and 17. I normally am gone two to three nights a week. So I've been home, you know, able to kind of pour into that. So from a family perspective, it's been uh, outstanding. Um, You know, and, you know, I looked at my husband the other day and I said, man, you know, this is going to be fun. Like when we're, when I'm retired and you're retired and whenever that, I don't think I'll ever retire. But I said, I, I, I have a lot of fun with you. This is going to be awesome. So, you know, I think there's all those gifts. And then, and then you also find yourself in a place where, I mean, my pace, really, since I graduated from college has been quick and fast. When I was a sports agent for 20 years, it was constant 24-7. And then as a speaker, I speak 60 plus days a year. And, you know, we have another company, Game Changer Negotiation Training, that we deliver negotiation training. So it's given me a chance to pull back and pause and build some products, build some content. We're launching a couple new products Uh, you know, and, and, and amping up the content even more. So, you know, there's gifts in that, I think uh, in a way to have the opportunity to pause and, and lean into some, some development, some content, et cetera. So it's been great. It's been, it's been
1: powerful and positive. Yeah. That's been my experience of it too. I was, I was working on a TV show in New York city of all places and that, you know, got shut down like everything else. And I came back here and, you know, I've been leaning into, you talk about content, like I've been restructuring, reorganizing, yeah. uh, really taking advantage of people's schedules being free. Uh, by the way, how is the connection sure. here? Are you okay? Or are you glitching a little bit? Yeah.
0: Oh yeah. You're okay. Yeah. Okay. No, I got you. Perfect. Yeah. yeah and for that's sure. the
1: other thing, like, you know, so many of these have been, it's kind of great in that people are free, but then you're also doing it over zoom where I'm used to doing these things in person. So it's all sure. you just have to you have to go with it, and you have to, yeah. Like you said, I think I don't even know if we were recording yet about about leaning in. Um, I've got a question for you, just so you play tennis at Michigan State, yeah. You you're yep, you yeah, you are your energy just from from the get go, and from what I've seen on you know I've seen some of your speakers reels and everything, and it's just you are a. A go-getter I can just feel your energy Through my computer screen Um, How (laughs) does How does like uh, Relaxation Looseness Kind of um, Going with the (laughs) flow Which I think is necessary in tennis How does that weigh into your Overall strategy Of everything Even now When we're We're slowed down But you're You're still charging
0: well, I mean, I think on the tennis court, you know, you could, you could before a match, get your head around the opponent, understand their weaknesses. But when you walk out on the court, whoever shows up that day, both in yourself and who you were playing, I mean, you got to pay attention to that, right? Like you've got to recognize, Hey, normally her backhand's weak, but man, for some reason today it's strong or normally she's not making her first serves and, and she is today. So, you know, as an athlete, you were constantly adjusting, to find a way to win. And as my mom used to say, the last point, which is really what matters most is just win the last point. That's what she'd say to me before I walked out to every match. So, you know, and I think we're like that in life right now, right? I mean, you, you want to build a strategy, you want to have vision, you want to do all those things. But at the end of the day, you've also got to be aware of what's happening around you and be open to pivoting and adjusting your game plan along the way. I, I mean, I do quarterly, goals. I do annual goals. I do all those things. And, and I think it's important though to relook at those and say, okay, what, what adjustments do I need to make now? Um, and they may just be little ones, but you've got to pay attention to them and you've got to adjust if you want to win the game. Right.
1: Yeah. Well, it's ironic. I'm not uh, much of a tennis player, I would call what I do clown tennis. Um, I played <laughs> I played lacrosse in college; that was my thing. Yeah, but I, but yeah. I. Uh, so th- this is funny though. As as I was getting ready, I'm like, what what do I really want to talk to her about? And and something came up, and I looked at my bookshelf, and I realized a, a few years ago, um, I had an audition. It was kind of one of those like horrible, just nightmare auditions. I came out of the, the waiting room. I saw this guy, I know, another actor, works all the time, and we've known each other over the years, but we weren't tight tight friends. And yeah. he saw something in my eyes like it was just bad. It was like deer in headlights kind of bad. And he's like, "Are you okay?" I was like, "Yeah." I was like, eh. "It was it was bad. It was it was awful." So we talked about it a little <laughs> bit. We exchanged numbers and he texted me. He's like, "Listen, I'm not a tennis player." But somebody, one of someone in his family got him this book, The Inner Game of Tennis by uh, Timothy Gallwey. Yes. I, and I read yes. he said, he said, read it. The parallels for actors are unbelievable. So I read it and just like I haven't looked at it in a while, but just because I knew I was gonna be talking to you, I looked through and no, you know, I, I don't know that we'll be videoing these, but I have so much of this book is yeah. underlined and notes and everything because the parallels are. Th- there's They're yeah. so great. Like it's basically, you know, as I read it with him, it's like, this is the one forum where you are out there on your own. I played a lot of team sports, yeah. but you guys, I mean, I don't know yeah, if you played sure. doubles as well, but you are out there, you live yeah. and die on you. And, and that's yep. it. And, and what you were just saying about, it's like, you really have to listen as a tennis player, yeah. not not listen, you know, with your ears, but you're listening, you're reacting more, maybe yeah. more than almost any other sport because it's so quick mm-hmm. and and yeah. how how has that translated into your life as an entrepreneur i'm imagining you know you're listening to your clients you're listening to what do they need when you go speak how how does yeah. that what, is that just something that's now ingrained in you or did you also just have to learn it and have it beaten into you through years and mm-hmm. years of tennis training and, and, and failing and getting back up again.
0: Yeah. Well, well I'm a huge, I'm a big fan of listening. I mean, I think when we listen, we learn so much. And I think there's lots of ways to pretend like you're listening, but I'm talking about really listening, not listening to think about what you're going to say, but listening to understand. And, you know, when I was a sports agent, it was imperative that I listened to the athletes and coaches that I wanted to represent because I needed to understand what were they worried about? What were their gaps? Wasn't what wasn't working in their world because a lot of times it wasn't what you thought it was right. And what motivated them wasn't necessarily what you thought it would be. And so you had to discover what those, those were. And so, you know, curiosity to me is a big driver in our ability to continue to evolve. And I remember I interviewed Arthur blank who owns the Atlanta Falcons and started home Depot when I was writing one of my books and Arthur said to me, he said, you know, Molly, if you follow the market, look for gaps and, 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 and at the heart, try to serve those gaps and support others through identifying what those gaps are, you're probably gonna, you know, have a lot of success. And so I think, again, that comes from listening uh, to, to what those are. So yeah. I mean, I think, you know, as a, you know, people often sort of think, man, you know, how you go from a sports stage to a speaker an author, and then you have this negotiation training. They're so different. But the truth is, you know, as an agent, my job was to manage a really short window of time, you know, and, and, and maximize that window of time for my athletes and coaches. I mean, some of these guys, as you know, right, like they, and gals, they make in four years, what we make in 40. Yeah. And, and their ability, you know, and the clock is ticking all the time physically on their bodies. And so, th- you have got to maximize that window of time for them and position them for life after sports. Because it's like I used to always say to my athletes, "Dude, when that jersey's off your back, people don't take your phone call like they do now <laughs> every time." Right? So we got to position you for when this is over. And you know, speaking's the same thing, right? Like you walk out up on a stage. You've got a thousand people, two thousand, five, whatever the number. It's staring at you, going, "What do you got for me, lady?" Because I'm busy. So make this good, and you got a short window of time to make a hopefully a really big impact and and move them. And so, you know, in my view, they're, they, the, the the journey from the tennis court, you know, to the agent space to, to to my world now is they're really so so much more connected than they're not.
1: Yeah, no, I I definitely see the connection between what you're doing. I'm actually interested. Something you just said, um, when you were, you know, negotiating a contract for an athlete, you're saying sometimes their needs are different. You need to know what their needs are. What's an example of, if you had any surprising examples where you thought, okay, I'm going out and I'm, I think I'm getting this guy a good deal. He's got to be happy with it. And then you found out maybe there was something behind the scenes going on for for the athlete that that made their, you know, their what they wanted or what they thought was a successful negotiation different than maybe you originally thought it, it would be.
0: No, I remember I was in Detroit and I was recruiting a guy who was a left-handed pitcher, Mike Moroth. And I get there and I sit down at the table with him and he and his wife and I had kind of gotten him a little bit of a trade out deal. And I was trying to get an opportunity to to build a relationship with him, to show him how we could support him. And, and we sat down and, and his wife looked at me and said, Hey, I just want you to know we love our agent, right? Like, in other words, don't, don't try to recruit us because we're good. We had a really great lunch. And, and what I discovered really were his gaps were were things that you wouldn't expect. I mean, number one, his wife wanted to have a relationship with the agent and she really didn't have a relationship with his previous agent. And that was really a secret weapon for me. I found that across the board was that oftentimes you, you know, traditionally agents are, are representing, if it's a male, the male athlete, and they're less worried about the entire family. And what I learned and realized was, man, I have an opportunity to serve an entire family and support the wife if it was a male athlete. Because if you're a bigly guy and, and you get traded, you get on an airplane and you fly from Detroit to San Francisco. And, you know, I get him the right color spikes because he's got to get out of the mound the next day. But the wife is standing there pregnant with three kids, four cars, a house, going, dude, what, what do I do? So I put a team around me to help make sure we represented a whole family. And, and so that was different, right. Than than maybe what people expect. But when I sat at that lunch, I heard him, his dad had just been diagnosed with MS and he really was close to his father and he wanted to do something for his dad. And so I went back and then I, I called some of the folks that I knew at, at, at Comerica park, tiger stadium, and set it up for him to have MS day at Tiger stadium. And, and there was a part of the tickets that were sold that went to MS, you know, foundation. We had his dad throughout the first pitch that night, you know, and, and it was, it was a gap that the world would have not thought, man, but that was one of the things that kind of put him over the hump for him to come join and for us to represent him. So there was like things like that. I remember when we negotiated Ernie Johnson's contract with Turner and EJ's an incredible guy, right? He's, he's, He's on, on the, you know, TV between, you know, Barkley and, and, and Kenny. I mean, he's this glue that keeps these two big personalities together. And and I remember, you know, our job as an agent was to try to get our guys, obviously, as much money as we could. Often, that was what, you know, when people think of an agent, that's what they think of. And But with EJ, it was different. I mean, what mattered to EJ wasn't that, you know, it was that his son is severely disabled and could he you know, get him the very best wheelchair in the world? And and could he maybe get some other cool things for, for his son, Michael, who was, as I said, severely disabled? Or could he go adopt more children that he could bring into his home and, and support and serve those children that needed a loving, caring environment? It wasn't about setting a record on a TV contract. That didn't matter to him. What mattered was he positioned himself to be able to serve other people even more. So you gotta listen though to grab that stuff so that you can close the gap.
1: Yeah. Well, it's funny because like everything that I saw in you that everybody's their their lead, and I'm sure I'll I'll have to do it in my intro as well. But everybody's like, the female Jerry Maguire, the female Jerry Maguire, and I saw the the origin <laughs> of that, and I was like, I'm not gonna say that. I'm not gonna say that. Everybody else is saying it. But <laughs> but I can see, you know, I can see where that the comparison comes just somebody who's actually thinking about the whole person, which is really what I think that, you know, his whole mission statement and that whole movie was really about personal relationships. And, um, and it sounds like you had that. And what I, and what I love though, is even again, talking about looking at the opportunity in the challenge, which is you're, you were in a, a profession that is, is there not a lot of women sports agents from, sure. from what I know, you took that, totally. and that and that was your ace in the hole. And that's something we talk about on this show all the time. How do you take your biggest, you know, your biggest liability is your biggest asset if you look at it that totally. way. And it's like, that. I love that you did that, that you were thinking about the wife and, and you know, who's the mother of yeah. the kids and, and people, they don't really, they don't think about that, but it is a family. Mm-hmm. I know it as, as actors, like people have this view of actors being some, I don't know what it is, but it's like, they're just people, you know, they have families and they have totally. problems and 100%. their job happens to put them in front of a lot of people, but they're, they're really just right. trying to like, you know, protect the kids and raise the kids. And, and totally. it sounds like, you know, hundred <laughs> percent.
0: And they have issues and challenges. I mean, I always would laugh like Schmaltz was one of my clients, you know, I'd take John somewhere and somebody would meet him. We'd go to an appearance whatever. And they go, he's so nice. And I'm like, dude, just cause you show throw a baseball 98 miles an hour. doesn't give you like the right to be a wreck. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah. just cause you, I mean, it, it, but people are always fascinated, man. Like he's so nice. It's like, yeah, yeah. you know, people should be nice.
1: Well, that, that's the, that was the whole origin of this show was I started to see, you know, like I, am I, and especially when I started this show, it's like, I was acting, I'm working and whatever. I've sure. been on shows, but, but certainly not on some like easy track at all. You know, like, yeah, I'm like, sure. hu- totally. I'm in it. And I'm like, you know, I'm like hanging on by a thread. And then you'd be in a certain <laughs> situation and you'd be you could be in New York city or you could be just in a random place and someone knows you from a show and they're like, Oh my God. And they have this idea of what your life is. And I remember just going like their idea of what they think my life is and what my life really Mm -hmm. is are two vastly different things, which is what started this whole podcast to go, okay, so I must be looking at some person who's like flying around in these, you know, private jets and thinking, Oh, that's all they do. It's like, no, 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 no. You, you start to talk to them. And you realize what it took to get there. You realize, you know, that it's not so perfect even now, sometimes many times more challenges. So what, what are examples of like kind of the, what did you see? Cause you were around so many high, high achievers and you yourself are a high, high achiever. Mm -hmm. What did Mm -hmm. you see, particularly with the ones that had the baggage of fame attached to their success what did you see as like the biggest obstacle, and then how did the the best of them deal with that and not let it sink the whole ship?
0: Well, I mean, I, I think Kyle. I mean, I think it would vary, right, based on whether you're a college coach, whether you're an NBA coach, whether you're a baseball player, whether you're a PGA tour player. But I think you just touched on a little bit. I mean, the biggest obstacle is the road to that place that got them there is really, really hard, and and I think. You know, the world sees all the big moments. You know, the world sees, you know, Tiger draining putts on 18 to win a tournament or, or Phil or, or Rory or pick a guy or a gal, Annika. But what they don't see is the thousands of missed putts, the thousands of practice rounds, the thousands of balls hit on the driving range. You know, the, the world sees the, 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 the shot with two seconds left that they make, but they don't see all the ones they missed or, or, or all the times in the, in the gym, you know? And so I, I think the, the world sees the big moments and, and, and I saw all the little moments and to your point, how hard it is. I mean, I, I remember sitting, you know, with guys that were getting ready to get drafted and, you know, they'd have a full ride to go play baseball at a we'll call it a top five program in the country, but you know, maybe they were going to be a first round pick, but they were coming out of high school, you know, and those were heartfelt conversations about, look, this isn't like this. You mean, you, yes, you might get a lot of money out of the gates, but 50% of first round guys make it to the big leagues. You know what I mean? Like, and you're going to spend three, five years in the minor leagues. It's lonely. You're by yourself. You know, you're it's, it's not, you know, and, and there's no guarantee on what this looks like. And maybe you've taken a pass on college. I mean, so it's, you know, one of the things that I thought, and, and, and I've always done is try to be real open on the front end uh, about what this journey would look like and that it's going to be hard. You know, I think that's uh, any guy or gal that's gotten to that place, whatever that place is for them, a, a head coaching job or a big spot from a TV perspective, there was a lot of work that went into that. You know, I mean, granted athletes at some level have physical gifts, but the ones that stay in the big leagues, right. Or the PGA tour place, yeah, there's a lot of guys and girls out there that get there, but the ones to me that are really, really special, obviously, are the ones that stay there because they're the ones that take have taken their God-given talent, plus, you know, work ethic, plus discipline, plus commitment, plus effort, plus 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 to stay there, yeah. which is the toughest part, of course.
1: Yeah. As you're talking, I'm just thinking about. I, I had this thought actually right when. Right when uh, COVID hit, and I don't know when, we, this won't even be released probably till the summer. So hopefully this is, I think it's still all relevant. But I had someone, uh, I had someone, Sam Apuzo is a college athlete. Uh, she was uh, the best female lacrosse player in the NCAA a couple of years ago, went to Boston College. And I saw something on her feed immediately and and also Boston College's coach who I interviewed they both said you know our hearts go out to the seniors who their season was gone yeah. and i remember thinking oh god that's so sad you work that hard and it gets taken away your senior year then i thought wow just all of us everybody you know we we all have something to worry about but as you're talking about athletes in particular and i know mm-hmm. there's no one out there mm-hmm. with the violin they're going oh they get these multi-million dollar contracts i get it but right. the shelf yep. life, as you said, the shelf life is so short and that moment right. to capitalize the, you know, it's like the contracts are huge, but if you miss that, it's like, you know, Luke Skywalker hitting that little point in the Death <laughs> Star to blow it up. And I'm just thinking right, right now with, with COVID, it's like these, these kids that yeah. maybe came from a really tough background, they've worked themselves just, just killed themselves to get there. They're right at that moment. And then who knows how long this is, who knows what the future of it all is, all of that stuff. It's, yeah. it's heartbreaking to think that someone could be right at the doorstep and then, I know. And, and that's, that's, I guess what you dealt with all the time because- yeah. that exists for injuries as well. I mean, I guess someone could blow a knee 500%. out at any time. And what what was the biggest heartbreak that you saw? And and not that I want to get more into your story too, but now we're kind of on this yeah. like dog with <laughs> a bone of like, but but like a heartbreak <laughs> that you saw and how did you coach your athletes through it when, when something like that, that's maybe out of their control um, came at them and, and really affected them? How would you get them? Yeah. Back out, out there in their minds, even if they couldn't play again.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, one, I mean, I think uh, you know these guys and gals don't have a lot of people around them to tell them the truth. And so the, the the thing that I think all my clients do is I was always going to be honest with them, right? I was always going to tell them the truth, and that's important because there's a whole bunch of people that don't. I mean, sometimes even their spouses don't want to tell them. You know, don't go out in that sweater; it's ugly. I mean, even just stuff like you know but so to me, it was always important that they knew that it was coming from the heart and it was always going to be the truth. And it was always going to be what was best for them. Um, it it is what mattered most, but you know, a lot of these guys and, and, and gals, I mean, at the, at the core, I think you've got to prepare them for these moments, right? At some point it's going to end. Now we don't know when that might be. It might be because you've gotten, you know, you've just sort of gotten physically too old. Uh, maybe there's a, a sudden injury, whatever it is, but you know, immediately when, when, when I had athletes, I wanted to start them thinking about when this is over because it's going to end. It's going to end. And so what does that look like? what do you want to do when it's over? What does that look like for you? And preparing them for that and getting out ahead of that early to me was incredibly important, something that I always, you know, always tried to do because so often, you know, when you ask athletes, what do they miss the most? It, it's, it's oftentimes the, the time in the clubhouse, the time in the locker room. You know that's what they miss. It's not really throwing a baseball ninety eight miles an hour, you know, holding a trophy over their head. You know, it, it's it's the it's the it's the the practice yeah. rounds on Tuesday. Tour players love those, right? I mean, it's that.
1: So I'm, I'm shaking you know. my head vehemently, like up and down, because I I don't yeah. want to interrupt you, but that is exactly what I I think. I mean, it's the same thing. Like the firefighters that I know, they love yeah. the firehouse. Me as an actor, it's that it's that band of of brothers and sisters when you're working on a project and it's a crazy you know crazy hour it's it's that yeah. is the it's that striving for something together and and i have you know i've spoken to athletes and then i've also listened to interviews and that is it's like a, it's like the crowd goes away the guys go away and now yeah it's it it almost reminds me of that moment I don't know if you ever saw the movie Hurt Locker with Jeremy Renner when he's he he's, he's mm-hmm. he, you know diffuses bombs and he comes back home and there's this great scene where he's walking through the supermarket late at night and it's like he's just back and yeah. he's he's safe now but uh-huh, uh-huh. he misses he misses the adrenaline rush and he wants to totally. go back to the war. Right. And that that's kind of, I feel like that captures what you're talking about. You know that.
0: Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. And, and I also For saw sure. in
1: your, in your keynotes, you, what I saw was you talking to people about that, like having the end result in mind and reverse engineering and getting there. Yeah. Could you just talk to us about that a little bit? How you, how you um, view that in terms of setting a vision up in the future and working toward it? And how, how do you kind of go about that?
0: Well, I mean, I think, uh, you know, you've got to know the people that you serve, right. For business people that are listening, I mean, you've got to know your customers, you've got to know what matters most to them so that you can anticipate things that are maybe forthcoming for them so that you can potentially support and serve them even better. But you know, like with 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 a golfer, if they wanted to get into golf course design, well, let let's start let's start opening that can of worms up early. Let's create some opportunities for you to shadow Fazio. Let's let's create some things that is going to allow you to get your head around if this really is interesting to you. If it's an athlete that thinks they want to do TV, if I have a coach that wants to do TV, I'm going to start putting them in the booth, calling games when they're not in, you know, March Madness, right? I mean, you see guys right now like Saban and these guys dropping into the booth for the national championship game when they're not in it, that's on purpose. That's very intentional because this gives him a chance to fill a reel, to create a little bit of a reel for himself to assess, you know, and, and for other network executives to assess, is this guy good at this or not? I mean, just because, you know, you got guys that are calling games or gals that are calling games that maybe they weren't the best, but they're good, you know, on TV. So, You know, it's just about anticipation, communication, getting clear, you know, and then putting them in a position for them to evaluate if this is interesting to them and 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 for them to build a bit of a resume, if you will, for the market so that it's open when they decide to jump in.
1: Let me let me take you back a little bit to your early days. I have a reason for wanting to do this, and usually I'll do it earlier on. But what was there always like if you went back to your childhood, did you know? If you ask that little girl, would she know she was going to be in sports and then and then an entrepreneur? Or did this like did does did your life as it has turned out, did you see that coming, or did it shock you? Did it come out of nowhere? What what was your love for sports and how I know how it translated into kind of the business side of it, but what was it like early on? Like, did you come from a full on sports family, siblings? What was the deal yeah. growing up?
0: Yeah. Well, I grew up in East Lansing, Michigan. And so, you know, my mom and dad and I would drive, you know, ride our bikes a lot to football games and and to watch the marching band and and all kinds of different things like that. Um, And, and, uh, you know, with a dad, who was a salesman and a mom who was a teacher and, uh, you know, and it's so funny because I think my world now is a little bit of both, right. It's teaching, coaching, you know, and, and, and then also selling. So it's, it's sort of interesting with two twin brothers that were five years older than me. That you know, beat the shit out of me is the truth, right? I mean, they they were, you know, five years older than me and treated me a whole lot more like a little brother than a little sister. And so I think they, you know, and I had a family where, like, if my brothers were wrestling with my dad and I wanted to jump in and get in on it, he'd sort of pop up. My dad wouldn't say, "Now look, don't go crying to me if you get hurt. You chose to jump in here." And there was lots of things like that in life that were lessons. You know what I mean? Like if you're gonna go there go there, but be ready for what that might look like. Um, you know, and then I, so I was a total tomboy. I was way more comfortable being outside climbing trees and things like that. And, uh, just being outside, you know, hanging out with my brothers. And then I played tennis, I swam and played basketball. And then my freshman year in high school, they were all at the same time. And so I had to pick a sport and that was when I really locked in on tennis, which today in the world we live in is late, right? To lock in your freshman year of high school on a sport, I, you know, it was late, but what happened was I, I was falling in love with it every day. And so when I got to college, I, you know, was a recruited walk-on, right? So I was sort of lucky to have a spot, but I was still so into the game that I wanted to keep getting better. And, and there were some injuries that year and I was able to, to play right out of the gates, um, which was awesome. So, and then when I was in college, I started to, to realize, you know, I love the business of sports. And I loved being around people that woke up every day and wanted to get better. And, and that was one of the things that I enjoyed the most about the sports agent space Is And that's sort of the work that I do now, right, is how do you just, you know, how do you help people unlock, you know, or get unstuck and, or, or sort of unleash their potential, unleash their best self on the world? And, you know, once I kind of got clear on that, I didn't know what that meant or what that looked like. But I knew that being around people that woke up every day and wanted to try to, to get a little bit better and, 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 and being able to support that was important to me. And, and, and I grew up in a house where, you know, my dad would have Zig Ziglar books all over the house, yeah. you know, Brian Whitley or whoever, you know, all of the. So I used to always sort of grab these and read them or, or kind of get my head. In. And I always just loved sort of that peak performance mindset um, has always been something I've been passionate about, but the, but the career itself was very, you know, I think unraveled very organically, candidly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm just thinking of my sports fan history and like, Oh, when I Uh grew up, I was, I I played everything. I loved, I was, it, it was constantly sports around my mind. And I got to a certain point in high school, and it was like I knew more about my local sports in my high school. And I started to, like, when I was a kid, I was a huge Cowboys fan, I was a huge uh-huh. Yankees fan, and I grew up in New York, yeah. but I was a Cowboys fan because my older brother was a Cowboys fan. So back in like the, the Landry days, yeah. you know? Um, yeah. And I, and oh, I yeah. actually saw that Staubach had, had, a, had a, a quote on your reel, which I was like, oh, that yeah. is awesome. Yeah. Uh, saying that you were the best. So, um, but, but I had this thing happen to me where as I got older, I felt like it, it's almost like I was a romantic about sports. So back then, it was like uh-huh. the Yankees that I loved and the Cowboys that I loved. They were the same team year after year after year, and I thought, "Oh, that's like a family." And then I got older, and I was like, "Oh, it's like a business. They're <laughs> trading, and now <laughs> someone who's on the Yankees plays for the Red Sox, and the Red Sox. You know what I mean?" Uh-huh. And, and so I almost got like, "Sure." It's like I've. It's like a, like the world. I was crushed by it. And I really am not as an adult, like a huge, I'm a, I'm a fan, huge fan of sports, but I'm not like a huge sports. Like I feel so ignorant about so many things as a guy who played Uh sports his whole life. How did that, like, how was it for you going behind the curtain? Was it like, like, did it, did it bum you out at all? It almost sounds like I'm actually happy to talk to you because it sounds like you saw the good in the behind the scenes stuff. Yeah. Whereas I would yeah. think it would, yeah. it would make me bummed out. Like, Oh, they're there. It's yeah. so much about politics and it's about, you know, positioning and all that stuff. And it's not mm-hmm. like, who's the best, who, who is the best athlete mm-hmm. or who, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. how did that, how did that, you know? Well,
0: like, I mean, yeah, I mean, for me, you know, it's interesting. Cause for me, I was never really a fan of, of, of a big crazy sports fan per se. So, uh, you know, when I would be in my office and Isaiah Thomas would walk in or Smoltz would walk in, I mean, it wasn't, and and the closer you get to these folks, the more you realize, you know, they're people. And, 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 you know, there were so many moments when I would remember, you know, Tom Izzo call me on his way to the arena for a game that night and and listening to all the stuff he had going on in his life, forget about the game he had to go play. Like the personal stuff, the, the mother-in-law had moved in because she was ill and, he didn't get a good night's sleep and like, you know, or smaltz with, you know, other challenges. And and so I, I would, I knew all the stuff that was going on and, and, and you, you, you love these guys. I mean, they were at my wedding. They were there when my children were born. I mean, and, and so you realize though, that they're just like us. They yeah. just, you know, they just do things differently. And, and some of them, and fortunately I only went after people that I wanted to be with, that I wanted to hang out with, that I wanted to talk to on the weekends, that if they called me at seven 30 or 10 at night, that I didn't look at the phone and go, Oh my God, you gotta be kidding me. Like, and I wanted to hit end, right? (laughs) Like I wanted to go sign athletes or coaches that if they called me on the weekend and I was on a walk, I would want to take their call. And so, and, and not every athlete or coach in the world, you know, probably is, is, is maybe like that. So, that was an important component. I mean, there was lots of athletes that we looked at that were studs, but I would call my other clients and I would say, dude, what is this guy like? What is this gal like? Is she the kind of person that we want to hang out with? If I came to see you on the road and we go to dinner together, like do you like her, do you like, and if I didn't hear what I thought I needed to hear, I would take a pass because I think, you know, it's like one of my guys used to always say, which I love, he would say, you better be better than your problems, right? In other words, you know, you, you want to make sure that you're working with people that are worth it. Right. Yeah. Uh, so that's cool. So they're, yeah, they're people, they're people at the core, obviously. Well,
1: you're also making me think just even as a business, it's like you want to, in order to attract the right people, you almost need to repel or stay away from the wrong people for you, Right. you know, because yeah, you, you take someone on who's going to be taking up your time and bringing the whole ship down, it's going to hurt the other athletes that you have that you love. hundred percent.
0: hundred percent. I mean, I would see that in clubhouses, right? I mean, you get 25 guys on a roster, you get one, you know, kind of, we call them cancer in the clubhouse. You get one of those. And, uh, you know, it can toxify an entire clubhouse or an entire locker room and and, and it's real and it's the same way in business. It's the same way with, with teams, certainly, you know,
1: I, I want to ask you about uh the transition to writing all the books and you've written four books but before I get there I want to I just want to ask one thing. I saw something where I think someone was asking you about like what, you know, what were the what was it that you saw in the the most elite athletes that you worked with? What was the common thread? And your answer was something to the effect of they they were, you know, better able to deal with with uh, adversity, you know, they were, they were quicker oh, to let right. it go. Talk to right. me about that. Just, you know, anything, cause I would, I would think particularly with golfer, yeah. with golfers, I would think that's totally. gotta be maybe the biggest or basket, you know, actually yeah, yeah, small yeah. to think of a pitcher, it, that kind of sure. focus on their every move. How, how did that manifest yeah. itself and how have you taken that and adopted it for your own life?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, we all, you know, I, I think, you know, one of the books I wrote was Fearless at Work because I think if we're, if we're pushing ourselves, if we get a little bit uncomfortable and and we sort of challenge ourselves, we're we're maybe going to fail sometimes, obviously, right? If you're not, if you're not failing a little bit, maybe are you pushing the limit enough, right? I'm not sure you are. So, you know, it's like in the gym, right? I mean, all of a sudden you can't throw that, you know, bench press up again because, but you're getting stronger while you're doing it. So, you know, I I was on the range actually at the, at the masters. And I looked at Butch Harmon, who is a, you know, superstar golf coach. He's taught and worked with some of the best golfers in the world, men and women. And, and I asked Butch, what's the difference between the guys playing this week and everybody else? You know, what's the difference between the guys that make this tournament, make this cut and the rest. And literally I'll never forget it. Butch goes, Oh, well the guys out here, my, they just recover from adversity faster than everybody else. He goes, they just recover really fast. And I said, and, and he goes, watch the scorecards this week. He said, this is a really golf, tough golf hole. I mean, golf tournament. I mean, this is a tough golf course. You guys are going to bogey golf holes. He goes, but the best ones tee it up on the next one and par or birdie it. You know, they recover. They don't unravel. And I think, you know, whether it was for me in tennis, when I was playing tennis, I mean, if I double faulted, I'm going to throw a second serve in for the next point and get it started and recover. You know, I think if you, if you lose a deal or you lose a sale, if you're a business person or you make a mistake... The key is to sort of reframe those moments as obviously an opportunity to learn and grow and to be intentional about recovering really fast. Most of the time when I see, you know, athletes or anybody, when, when you sort of struggle, it's because they it just keeps compounding. And obviously, I think, you know, when you'd see baseball players that would go, oh, for their last 40 at the plate. Well, at one point, I mean, they're they're in the big leagues, right? They can hit. Right. So it's in their head. You know what I mean? You don't need to go down to BP early and fix your swing. Your swing's probably fine, right? Right. Just get out of your head. And so and so that's part of the recovery component that I think is key. But I think for all of us as business people, we have to be intentional about that recovery and reboot. And I think the way to do that is, particularly for business people, is to go to your why. You know, go to why you do what you do. When we know why we do what we do. It helps us navigate all the speed bumps, all the challenges, all the no's, right? Right. Uh, it helps us recover from those.
1: What What about for you? Is there one particular, I call it a no, you know, for the sake of a show called 10,000 no's, but is there one particular <laughs> no setback, something just, you know, break down anything that you had that was Maybe because as as you're sitting in front of me, I'm going, man, she is a just you are a, a pistol. Like you're just seem like there's no stopping you. And but I'm wondering, has there ever been a time where you've just been knocked on your ass in one way, shape, or form and felt like mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm gonna get up. Like I don't mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm gonna recover. From this, have you had that? And if so, how'd you get out of it eventually? Because you don't appear, but yeah. I know that I know because oh, sure. you're human, that can't be the case. But oh, totally,
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh, for sure, you know. Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch, right? I mean, I guess I would go back to you know, my fall term freshman year. I get I don't tell this story a lot either. You're good, you know. So I go to Michigan State, I, I get to college, I'm playing tennis, I'm playing well, I'm, I made the team, right? I, I, there's been some injuries, I'm playing that one doubles, four singles, five singles. You know, I rushed to sorority, you know, love the girls in my house. I was, I was having a great time. I remember coming home and I, you know, I went to Michigan State, grew up in East Lansing. So that was two miles away. And I come home and I'm like, mom, college is amazing. Like I am, I mean, this is, this is, I mean, I'm playing great tennis. And I remember her being like, how's class? And I was like, (laughs) oh yeah, no, I got it. I got it. Anyway, I get a one eight, one eight fall term freshman year, which, you know, with all due respect to Michigan State kind of hard to get a 1A. (laughs) So I am 0.01 away from being ineligible, which would have horrified me. I can't go active in my house because I've got below a two point. Anyway, you know, how did I recover? I mean, the truth, (laughs) I don't know if this is good or bad, but I mean, it scared me a lot because I I wanted to be able to play tennis at that level, you know, and I knew that I was better than that. I was like, you're better than this. This You you were a good student in high school.
1: Were you a good student in high school? Yeah. uh, Yes.
0: I mean, school's always been, I mean, I was a B plus a minus ish. Right. But I had to work hard. I was one of those kids. I wasn't the kid that could sit in class and then not take notes and show up and get an A on an exam. That wasn't me. But anyway, the the long story short on that is I I ended up like 4.7 terms in a row after that and just locked in. And I still was on the team and I was in my sorority and I was having a great time, but I sort of figured out that balance. And, you know, I knew that I, got, I had to pull that up and pull it up fast and then ended up graduating with like a, you know, three, nine or something. But so, uh, you know, and and then I've been knocked on my butt other times. I mean, I remember when I was trying to publish my first book, I mean, it was just no, 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 no. And it's a whole interesting process for people that are listening, that <laughs> have written books. I mean, it's it's a weird, different market to navigate. And I could have wallpapered my apartment with, with rejection letters from publishers. And, and then I thought, you know, I'm going to just really get after and go recruit a publisher. Like I'm going to just recruit the person, the company, the publishing house that I wanted to publish the book and, you know, flew to Indianapolis, you know, and and literally just recruited this publisher. And, And they agreed to publish my first book, which which then allowed me to kind of get going. And now there's so much self-publishing and things, but at the time you really needed to get it published by a, by a publishing house. So, you know, and then there was athletes I go after that I wouldn't get, but you know, I think it's about what we tell ourselves that help us recover.
1: Well, where were you in your career when you wrote the first book? Like how, how much success had you had? And then how did you, did you use that success to go, no, no, I'm good even though they don't see it because it's hard. I know that in my business, it's hard yeah. when when nobody that's in the establishment, like for me. Uh, y- there can be yeah. periods of time and and many really talented actors I know where you just can't get arrested for a job and you're like you you almost <laughs> feel like you're going crazy. You're like I really yeah. think I'm good. I can't believe that I can't even get a job right now. Do yeah. how did you how did you have the faith and the confidence to go. No, I'm looking at all these rejection letters on the wall. They're wrong. Yeah. I'm right. What was it that yeah. kept you going? What was it?
0: Well, it was the marketplace, right? So that my first book was how to find, really how to find tough jobs in sports because I was I was in my office as an agent. So many young people want to be agents. My phone would ring all the time and I worked for a, an agency and I'd have all these young kids that would want to find a job in sports and so they would reach out to me and Meanwhile, I'm recruiting athletes and coaches. But meanwhile, I have all these kids from borderline trying to recruit me to, to get an opportunity at, at the agency. And so I would try to meet with these kids for 15 minutes. And, and the boss, the gentleman that I worked for, a really good man, but he would walk by and be like, who's that kid? You know, does he play for Georgia Tech or Georgia? And I'm like, no, he's a young kid trying to get in sports. I was just trying to give him 15 minutes and help him. And after like walking by three or four meetings, he's like, I'm paying you. They're not paying you. Quit being so darn nice and meeting with all these people. But I wanted to help them because I felt like I was seeing the same thing and I felt like these young people didn't get it. I felt like they didn't understand how to find a tough job. And so I was, and then at that point I became pregnant with my twins. I think that was the time I was pregnant with our first child. But anyway, I would go to this coffee shop and I would write and I would write and write and write. And I thought, you know what, when when I was pregnant and then when she was born, when she would nap, I would write. And I thought, you know, I'll just staple this together and give it away if I can't find a publisher. But I can't meet with all these kids. It's breaking my heart because they need help. So worst case, I'll staple it together and give it away. But gosh, it'd be great if I could publish it, because then I could, you know, that would be that would be helpful to distribute it. So long story short, I mean, I, I knew that the world and this this group of, you know, this very obviously niche group of people, but I knew that they needed it. And it was written in a way that it was broader than just finding a job as a sports agent. It was really more how to teach young people how to go after their dream job, how to go for it and how to do it. Um, So I was still, I don't know, I was early in my career, but it it, it hadn't maybe been 10 years, but it hadn't been three, right? Yeah. And then I started to see a common thread in peak performers uh, when I was working with all these athletes and coaches. And, you know, at the time I got to the agency, we had four or five clients. And then um, when I I left to start speaking and writing and, and running game changer negotiation training, Uh, you know, we had about 300. So I started to see a common thread in peak performers. And then that was when I wrote my second book, which was sort of in late 20, in like 2009 on, you know, the business of being the best, which was the common thread between peak performers. Um, so, So, you know, to me, it's a little bit of what Arthur Blank told me, right? If you listen to the market and you come with a servant heart, you're, you're, you're probably going to close a gap and it's probably going
1: to work. Well, I was thinking as you're telling us that story, it's something you said earlier. And there's a book that I love Simon Sinek start with why I was thinking yeah. it's your, it's your why. Cause you remind me that first book reminds me of me with this podcast. And now my book, which is a same deal. I have all these young actors all the time. It, whether it's now it's through the podcast. Sometimes it's just randomly. And sometimes it it used to be through my parents. Like they'd say, oh, so-and-so's daughter wants to be an actor. Can you talk to, and I'd get on, I I would email and I'd get on these, you know, like a lot of time put into people that I didn't know. And I, I would always feel bad. Like someone's giving you bad information, you know, like you you can do better than that. You have the wrong information. So there's a desire to try to, it's a why it's, I mean, I love hearing that, that the Underneath mm-hmm. all of it, really, you just want to help some people. Sure, 100%. Um, tell yeah. me, because I'm, I'm going to let you go. I know uh, I, I don't want to keep you forever. Um, just give us a little bit about the negotiating, what you're doing currently, what your company does, in addition to you doing keynotes. <laughs> like, What do you do and how... I'm a, I mean, I have an idea of how that came about. It, it makes sense. But what what yeah. particularly do, do you do with this new company?
0: With the negotiation? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so when I was an agent, um, I negotiated, you know, almost a half a billion dollars in deals. And I saw a process that worked that I think is counterintuitive the way the world thinks about negotiation. And as I, you know, got kind of more settled into the non-sports world and more of the business world, I realized not everybody negotiates every day, but they could and they're missing opportunities. And I started to understand why is that? And and what I realized is they haven't really been taught how. And so people avoid negotiation because it's scary and it's it's not clear oftentimes. And that most people haven't ever been taught how to negotiate. And as an agent, I just saw such a clear process on how to navigate what is really just a difficult conversation, how to, how to really set the stage, how to prepare, how to how to add value to the lives of the people that you want to negotiate with, um, how to prepare for these conversations and create options for the people that you're negotiating with. And then just a ton of, you know, best practices. So so now, whether it's virtual or in-house, we deliver, you know, it's a one-day program generally, or if it's delivered virtually, it's four 90-minute sessions. And, and we teach people a process that works, that allows them to do really three things, right? Which, which to me is imperative, right? And if we can teach people, we teach people how strong relationships with the people that they negotiate with. Because what I found as an agent is the stronger my relationship, oftentimes the quicker and better the deal was. And so we we teach people, and that's counterintuitive. A lot of people don't think uh, that that's incredibly important. But what I found is the stronger the connection, the stronger the relationship, the the, the quicker I could close the deal and, and the better the deal. So we teach people how to strengthen the relationship and close better deals and close them more quickly uh, in, inside of these conversations. So it's, it's, it's a blast. It's awesome.
1: I am so glad that I asked you that question. Cause I want to read that book. I want to <laughs> read that book. I'll send I, you one, man. Send me one because that is, you. that is something that I, I've never particularly thought like, Oh, I just need to hone in on that. But that is so important in life. I'm just oh, thinking as you're saying it, I'm like it in everything, Totally. Everything. I mean, everything's a totally. negotiation. Totally. Oh, man. Everything
0: is. And I think there's, you know, it's negotiating your time. It's negotiating your energy. It's negotiating what projects you take on. I mean, it's it's so much more than dollars and cents. And I would argue that there's two to three or more opportunities a day to, to negotiate. And I and what I found is, you know, I certainly didn't start negotiating $100 million contracts. I started with 25 and 50000 fifty thousand dollar deals. And so, you know, start small practice. And and the more you practice, the more confident you get. And the more confident you get, the better you get.
1: That's awesome. All right. I got three little questions for you. I mean, they could be as big as you want to. All make right, I'm them. ready. First one is yeah, yeah. Uh, the word, and this is a good one for you in particular with negotiating. The word no means what to you?
0: It's
1: just feedback. It's just feedback. I like that. Okay. Um <laughs> When everything goes sideways, do you have a go to mantra that gets you through?
0: Yeah. To lead, inspire, and connect with courage and optimism is my personal mission statement. So anytime things get tough, I say, How can I lead? How can I inspire? How can I connect? And do it with optimism. And that helps me sort of navigate tough moments.
1: That's cool. I like how concise you are. Last question. (laughs) If you could give your younger self advice, what age would you intervene and what would the advice be?
0: Um, You know, I probably would go to seventh grade when I was sort of uh, getting bullied a little bit, getting left out of different things. Uh, I got thrown and in, locked into a locker once before class. And, you know, I wasn't as confident. Um, my mom would be there at the back door of the school and pick me up because I was sort of afraid of, A couple of the girls that were trying to pick on me, and and uh, I I wish I would have just said, "Look, you're going to be all right. Stay confident. Believe in yourself. Stay true to who you are. And uh, it's okay. Everybody doesn't have to like you, right? Uh, Stay strong and 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 you know, stay confident."
1: That's awesome, Molly Fletcher. I'm so glad that we. I guess we have to thank John Gordon because I think he's our common bond.
0: Yeah. Uh, and he is. I,
1: I'm so glad that, that you came on 10,000 knows your, I, I can't wait to read your book. I am going to hold you to that. I want to read the Negotiator. All right. Book. Well,
0: you got to text me your address. I'll, I'll get, I'll I'll get, get all you. the
1: information to Ann. Uh, okay. Thank you so much. Yeah, We're okay. going to put uh, links to all of your, your books and everything in our show notes and, and all over the place. Cool. So people can get to, to contact you if, if you want that. And, um, and that's it. Thank you so much. And stay, awesome. stay safe. Really, really love this.
0: You stay safe, too, man. Good to see you. Thanks so much. Likewise. What we do here is go back, 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 back.
1: All right. Time for my top three takeaways. Here we go. Number one, just be nice.
0: Just because you show, throw a baseball 98 miles an hour doesn't give you, like, the right to be a wreck.
1: Number two, sometimes you're going to get beat up in the pursuit of your goals. Remember what Molly said about wanting to be in on the wrestling between her dad and her brothers?
0: If you're going to go there, go there, but be ready for what that might look like.
1: Number three, are you sitting in your comfort zone? Molly often reflects on how she and her athletes had to deal with heartbreak and failure. It's easy to sit in our comfort zone and wait for opportunities.
0: If we're pushing ourselves, if we get a little bit uncomfortable and and we sort of challenge ourselves, we're we're maybe going to fail sometimes, obviously, right? If you're not, if you're not failing a little bit, maybe are you pushing the limit enough?
1: All right, Molly Fletcher, thank you again. I hope all of you listeners are walking away with at least something that you'll use next time you have to negotiate anything from a job contract to trying to talk your way out of a parking ticket. I know I will. Go check out Molly's podcast if you dug her and do a deeper dive by checking out our show notes at 10,000nose.com for more ways to connect with Molly. As always, if you think this conversation can help someone that you know, please share this episode with your friends and followers, leave a review or take a screenshot on your phone and post it to your social media. Tag at 10,000nose and at Maddie Dell so we can thank you. And you can also join our mailing list by visiting 10000 noscom and filling out the form in the pop-up window. We'd love to have you. And I promise we won't flood your inbox and we'll add some value to your week. And in case you're new, reminding you that you can also tune in for our brief little Monday Morsels solo episodes to kick off your week. So we'll see you Monday or back again next Friday here for another full-length interview. Take care.